Good job. Praise team. I love you guys. I love you guys. Um, yeah, you always help me go to the right place. So thank you. Thank you for your music, your ministry, your practice, your work, uh, your prayer. I know you come to this ministry with much prayer, and I, I thank you for that. I'm blessed by it. Some who take the time to think deeply, you know, and I, you may have the same experience I have. I'm always astonished at how many people never do. They never think deeply about very much. But those who do ultimately ask questions like this, Who am I? They ask questions like, Why am I? What is my origin? What is my destiny? What does all this mean? What does my life really mean? What is the purpose for my existence? If you read many of the so-called great thinkers of the last several centuries, you'll discover that most of them are clueless about how to answer these kinds of questions. Another thing you'll discover if you read much philosophy is that many who approach these questions apart from a sound biblical worldview arrive at the same place. They basically arrive at a place of meaninglessness. Apart from God, if you extract God from the calculus, you arrive at an existence which is meaningless. Philosophers have coined a word for this. Some of you probably know it. It's nihilism. It simply means that uh, existence is senseless, meaningless, and useless. If human beings are nothing more than grown-up germs, if we are indeed an accidental byproduct of some inexplicable, random, cosmic, macro-Darwinian chance event, then we are the epitome of, I think, meaninglessness. We're all evolved up and we don't really have anywhere interesting to go. We really don't have very, we really don't have much interesting to do. We're all evolved up. Nowhere to go. Nothing much interesting to do. God has something to say to men who remove him from the cosmos, from the calculus of life. Uh, do you know what God calls such men? He says it quite explicitly in Scripture. He calls such men, well, I'll just read you the text, Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is what the fool says. Romans 1.22 says, they, God says they have become futile in their speculations, professing to be wise. They have become what? Fools. Men who remove God from the calculus of the cosmos and life. And of course, the Bible clearly teaches that it's not that men don't understand, it's that they do understand. I know there's this misconception in the world that men are seeking for God, men are trying to find God. If you actually read and understand your Bible, we understand what God says. Men are not God seekers. Men, someone tell me from Romans chapter 3, men are God Haters. This is what the Bible says. This is God's assessment. This is not um, man's assessment. This is God's assessment. It's not that man doesn't really know God is there. He knows full well He's there. If you read Romans chapter 1, 
19 and 20, God says, I'm not only evident in creation, I'm evident within you. He built us and designed us and wired us to know He's there. He, he is in your conscience. He is in your heart. You cannot not know that God is there. I've said this many times. Some of you have heard me say it before. You may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. You may be a liar, but you're not agnostic. You know He's there. God says you know. It is evident within you. It's how He made you. Theologian John Gerstner says it perfectly. Man reasons his way to God. In fact, he cannot ultimately reason away from God with any integrity. But he hates what he finds. He knows God is there. He just doesn't like God. Again, Romans chapter 3. So as always, God's assessment is correct. Only a fool would say there is no God. Only a fool would deny the self-evident testimony of the created order. Only a fool would uh, deny the unrelenting testimony of our own conscious, consciences. As Bible believers, we know the answer to these ultimate questions. We know who we are. We know why we are. We know our origin. We know our destiny. We know what this life is about. In fact, we could sum it up with a one-word answer. Anybody want to guess? It's about God. We get that as Bible-believing Christians. It is about God. We not only know the answer, we are jazzed about the answer. And I want to share a somewhat lengthy quote with you from John Piper. John Piper is right about this. He has this beautiful quote, so listen to me. Bear with me just for a moment. Human life... Someone tell me. Some of you have heard me quote this before. Human life is all about you. Right? Right? No. I hope I didn't burst anybody's bubble. It's not all about you. Piper says human life is all about God. Human life is all about God. That's why the world's so messed up. Because people are trying to make human life about something else. Human life is all about God. That is the meaning of being a human being, Piper says. It is our created nature to make much of God. It is our glory to worship the glory of God. When we fulfill this reason for being, we have substance. There is weight and significance to our existence. There is something of God's, I love this, greatness and beauty on us as we realize this purpose for our being. Not to fulfill this purpose for human existence is to be a mere shadow of the substance we were created to have. Not to display God's worth by enjoying Him above all things is to be a mere echo of the music we were created to make. This is a great tragedy. Humans were not made to be mere shadows and echoes. We were made to have God-like substance, make God-like music, and have God-like impact. That's the call of the New Testament. <laughs> that is the call of the New Testament. And in my view, that's what we see. We see these realities that John Piper's talking about in our text tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2. 9 and 10. But first, I'm going to take just one minute and I'm going to reacquaint us with 1 Peter. It's been a number of weeks since we've been there. So I want to remind you what God has said to us thus far. In the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, you guys probably, many of you will remember this, this litany. God says, I have chosen you. God says, that's how He opens the book. 
God says, I have redeemed you with My blood. I have indwelt you with My Spirit. I have caused you to be born again. I have prepared an imperishable inheritance for you. I am protecting you with My omnipotent power. I have ordained your trials. And I'm perfecting your faith through them. And the outcome of all of this will be the salvation of your souls. Then as we arrive at verse 13, chapter 1, God says, what does God always say? <laughs> therefore. That's right, blessing. God, there's always a therefore with God. God will state truth. And then He'll always say to His people, therefore. Therefore what? Someone guess. Therefore. Go do it. It's always in the text. It's always in the text. Verse 13, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Hope fully in My promises. Live as My obedient children. Forsake your former lust. Be holy, for I am holy. Conduct yourselves in fear. Let your faith and hope be in God. Love one another fervently. Put away all malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Desire the Word and grow up in respect to salvation, becoming a living stone in the spiritual house of God. And then as Peter arrives at chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, God warns of the doom of those who disbelieve and are disobedient to the Word and who reject Christ. So that brings us up to verse 9. Then God says, but you, you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Did you notice that verse 9 answers every ultimate question? It answers every one of the questions we open the sermon with. Who am I? I'm a chosen, royal Priest of God. Wow! I mean, if you're born again, that's who you are. It's an amazing text. Why am I? To proclaim the excellencies of God. No, Jim, I'm here to make a lot of money, have a great career, and get lots of cash, and buy lots of stuff, and have lots of fun. Right? No! Some of that may happen to some of you, but your preeminent purpose for being on the planet is to someone tell me, what does the text say? To proclaim the excellencies of this awesome God who created you and redeemed you. That is our purpose. What's my origin? The obvious inference is God. My destiny. Again, the obvious inference is God. What does all this mean? It is about God. It's all about God. Everything's about God. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, what? Let it be for the glory of God. Something as mundane as eating or drinking, let it be for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God if you're thankful. <laughs> if you're thankful and you receive it from His gracious hand. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve a meal today. The wages of sin is a day at the beach. Right? No, the wages of sin is death. You and I both deserve to be dead yesterday. That's what we deserve. But God is you heard me read the psalm. God, is, God is, is pouring out His loving kindness. He is merciful and compassionate and long-suffering. As Bible-believing Christians, we get what Piper's talking about. Human life is all about God. We, don't only, we, we not only get that, we love that. Do you love that? I love that. Listen, I tried it without God for 28 years. <laughs> and I got so bored at the end. You know, as you grow up, as you mature, you know, you try some of the world's pleasures. 
And you think, well, that's going to make me happy, man. If I can just get out in the world and I can do some stuff and really, you know, that, that'll, then I'll find what it's about. I was so bored. By my 28th year, I was bored. Then I found out who it's really about. And I'm telling you, when you, when you meet him, it, it all changes. <laughs> it all changes, man. You, you cannot not be jazzed about Jesus Christ. We were created by Him, and someone tell me, for Him. You were created for Him. And until you're in relationship with Him, really, I don't know, you're hopeless and helpless and ultimately bored. You will ultimately find yourself bored if you are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the most awesome, wonderful, beautiful, loving, delightful, engaging, alluring, fascinating, interesting, intelligent, trustworthy, capable, competent, and compelling person anyone has ever encountered. We know it's about God and we're excited about it as verse 9 says. We are a people for God's own possession. And we're not His we're not His by our own design. We're His by His design. Amen? He came for us. We did not go looking for Him. It's the most astonishing, epic, heroic love story ever told. God came for His bride. You cannot, love, you cannot not love the Gospel. Jesus is the beautiful shepherd. He laid His life down of His own initiative for His people. John 10, 18. When I think about John 10, I can't help but remember that great text in Exodus 15, 3. Our awesome God is a warrior. Jesus is a warrior. He laid His life down for His people. I love that great text, Isaiah 45:21. Our reigning God is a Savior. He's a warrior and a Savior. He's many, many, many things, but He's a warrior and a, and a Savior. There is no God like our God. No God loves like our God. No God saves like our God. I ask you this all the time. How can you not give yourself away to this God? If you really believe this, I mean, I know it's, we have a small group tonight, but there, there may be one or two in here that it's just kind of dogma. It's just doctrine. It's just religion. It's something I do because I've always done it. But beloved, the call of the New Testament is to give ourselves away to Christ unconditionally. Unconditionally. Do you love Him that much? Do you trust Him that much? Do you believe Him that much? That's, what, that's the call. <laughs> if we just read the red words um, in the Bible, that's the call. Uh, Jesus doesn't try to make it soft and fuzzy and comfortable. He says, pick up your cross and what? And go with me. Go with me. It's what Peter's been saying to us, I think, from the beginning of this epistle. Uh, we've been saved in the most astonishing way. Uh, astonishing way. Therefore, therefore, Go live it huge in the world. It's what I challenge you to do, I guess, almost every week. We're not like those who reject Christ Jesus. We know exactly who we are, why we exist. 
And it's what Peter's saying to us tonight. First, we are a chosen race. The Greek word translated chosen here is eklektos, most commonly translated elect. As some of you will remember, we talked about this at length as we began 1 Peter because Peter talks about, this is how the Holy Spirit directed Peter to begin his epistle. The first two verses of the book, emphasizing the reality. Actually, you can turn back and look. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says that you, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. While I know this makes some people tense, God is unequivocal and unapologetic. He uses words like, I call, I elect, I choose, I predestine my people to salvation. These are God's words. These are not my words. These are not the words of men. These are God's words. If you don't like these words, you take it up with Him. Don't come after me. Okay? I've had people come after me about this. Don't come after me. These are not my words. These are the words of God. He says what He means, and He means what He says. These words have meaning. They have meaning, beloved. The Holy Spirit chooses His words pretty carefully. If you have a problem with how God saves a man, don't talk to me. Although I'd be happy to answer any question you have. Um... You take it up with God. I know that many try to explain this biblical truth away, but God is emphatic. It's all throughout Scripture. This is how God saves. I'm not going to develop this truth again. We did it again in detail as we started this book. If you were not here, if you want to go back, go out on the podcast site, download the first three sermons, and we talk exhaustively um, about this truth. Verse 9 says, we are a chosen what? Race. What is God saying to us here? This is obviously not about color, ethnicity, or nationality. I mean, uh, for here we are at ICM. I was telling Taz earlier, we've had 74 nations through the church in nine years. I love it. I, I often say, I don't think I could ever go back to Little Rock. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I just love the richness of it. You know, meeting brothers and sisters from all over the world and fellowshipping with them and hearing how, how God has saved them and blessed them and what God's doing in their life. I just love it. I love hearing testimonies from all over the world. Of course, at ICM, we don't care what color you are, what nation you're from. We don't care about that at all. In fact, we love diversity. I, I personally love it. I personally love it. When the Holy Spirit uses this term race, it's not about an outward resemblance. Someone tell me. It's about an inward resemblance. It's not how we look on the outside. It's how we look on the inside. God has taken that heart of stone out and He's put in what? That heart of flesh. We have an inward resemblance. That's the race we are. We're a chosen race. And we resemble one another because we've been changed. We've been, yeah, John chapter 3. We've been born again. Yeah, there are 35 sermons here. I simply don't have time to, to develop this. But here's, I just thought about this for a few minutes and I just want to share this with you. By God's initiative, we are different than the world. We are different on the inside. Again, we are born of God, John chapter 3. You remember what Jesus said in John 7, we have rivers of living water flowing from our inmost being. 
Titus 3.5 and John 14.7, we are regenerated and indwelt by the third member of the Trinity. Romans 8 says we are adopted as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We are the kindred of God. We are the family of God. We are different from everybody else. And it's an inward thing. It's the miracle God has done. It's the miracle God has done. He gets the glory. Amen? He saves us in such a way that no man can boast. No man can boast. He does it. Again, for His glory. We are sons of light, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. I could go on and on and on. My mind was racing as I was meditating on, on these truths this week as I was working on the sermon. I'll just close with John 15.19. You were of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We are a different kind. We belong to God. This is an awesome thing, beloved. I pray that you are worshiping the Lord about this. You have been brought into relationship with the Creator, Redeemer, God. God says, my people are different. They're a different kind. They are mine. I chose them. I did a miracle in them. They are my sons. They are my daughters. They love me. That's how we're different. We don't feign loving God. We actually do love God. Amen? We don't feign it. We don't play religion. We love Him. None of us do it perfectly, but we love Him. I tell people, when they ask me, how can I know I'm a Christian? I say, it's in your affections. If it's not in your affections, you don't know Him. If you don't love Him, you've not met Him. You may have done some religious stuff, but if it's not in your affections... You've not yet met this beautiful God. Made me think of John 14, 21. We've mentioned it several times in the, in the last few weeks where Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll do what I say. It's that inside-out kind of Christianity. We are radically different kind of people. We are God-lovers and Word-doers. Again, not perfectly. But that's our resume. That's our... Uh, what do they do at a funeral? What's it called? Eulogy. He was a God lover and a word doer. That's it. That's what I want on my tombstone. He was a God lover. We could make it specific because, you know, the word God is, is thrown away in the, in the uh, public square so much that you don't really know what God's being talked about. I, I always tell people, use the name Jesus Christ. That makes people real nervous. So don't leave any confusion. Don't talk about a generic God. You talk about Jesus Christ. So on my tombstone, I want to say, a lover of Jesus Christ and a word doer. That's what I want. That's the only eulogy I need or want or desire. A lover of Jesus Christ and a word doer. Secondly, we are a royal priesthood. We touched on this some weeks ago in verse 5. We are living stones built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does this priesthood reference mean to a New Testament believer? Simply this, we take our place in the body of Christ. And we use our gifts to both honor the Lord and serve His people. We are serious about being involved in God's local 
church. In nine years here, Karen, I have encountered many internationals who seem to think that being a vital part of the local church is somehow optional or discretionary. Well, I'm in, the, I'm in Europe, I'm on holiday. Wrong. You're in Europe to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. That's why you're in Europe. That's why. If you're from the States or some other place. And if you're from France, that's why you're in Italy. <laughs> or if you're from England, that's why you're in Italy. To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Involvement in the local church is not a matter of convenience. We don't just try to fit Sunday worship into our schedule. We build our weekly schedule around it. So we can be with God's people. So we can praise Him and worship Him. And as I said earlier, cry out to Him in prayer. Give Him an offering. Remember through communion an ordinance that He set in place. Remember the greatness of our redemption. Beloved, we, as the Bible tells us, we do not need to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So we serve God in the church as we serve one another in the church. That is our priesthood. That is our priesthood. But did you notice we are a royal priesthood? The implication here is that we don't just serve a king. We will reign with the king. Again, there's 35 sermons here. I don't have time to develop this, but you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, we will judge the world and the angels. We will reign with King Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. It's a biblical truth. We will. We are a royal priesthood. This is awesome stuff. Have you worshipped God? Have you given thanks? Have you worshipped God? You're a royal priest! Serving the living King of kings and Lord of lords. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. Literally, I love this. Literally, we're a set-apart multitude. Don't you love that? We're a set-apart multitude. Yes, holiness, holiness, uh, holy means to be morally or ethically pure, ethnically pure, ethically pure. I'll get it right in a minute. That's, it does mean that, but we understand we are not yet holy in that way. Sanctification is a, a, a progressive thing in our life. We know that we are not holy as God is holy morally or ethically. We understand that. But we are holy in that what? Someone tell me. We are set apart. We are set apart. We are sanctified and consecrated by God. Set apart. We're left here. Oh, I don't know what I'm left here to do. You know, people come to me sometimes and say, Jim, I don't know what the will of God is. Proclaim the excellences of Him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. That's God's will. It might be as an accountant. might be as a mother. might be as a teacher. Might be as an engineer. It doesn't matter. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. That's God's will. Today, tomorrow, and every day until you stand before Him. That is God's will. The principal po point here is that we are set apart for God. We are set apart to know Him, love Him, worship Him, speak about Him, obey Him, honor Him, serve Him, please Him. And essentially, we are set apart for discipleship. It takes us back to what we've been talking about the last several weeks. We are set apart to be strong and do exploits upon the earth. Daniel 11.32. It's Hebrews 11 again. We are set apart to live our faith huge for the glory of God. 
set apart to live like sons and daughters of the Sovereign Almighty. We can obey God with glad, reckless joy, as I've been saying the last two weeks. Someone tell me, can you remember, why, why do we have license to obey the Lord with glad, reckless joy? Anybody remember anything we've talked about the last couple of weeks? A lot of pressure, huh? Because He's the God of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Beloved, we never have to shrink back. Our God is the reigning God. Our God is the sovereign God. We can do all He says because He will do all He says. Fourthly, we are people for God's own possession. The most literal translation is that we are, I love this, we are a people acquired. We are an obtained people. We are a purchased people. You guys know that great text, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Anybody remember? Therefore, glorify God. But I think the most famous and maybe the most insightful translation of this phrase in the King James is in the King James. And I love it. The King James says, you are, someone, does anybody know? You are, you are God, you're a people possessed by God. You are His possession. The King James translates it, you are a peculiar people. You know that, right? You are a peculiar people. You know, don't be surprised. If, you, if you're walking with Jesus, the world's going to think you're a little nuts. They may think you're way nuts. That's just how it is. We are a peculiar people. There's some different ways to def, uh, define that word. Yes, it can mean unusual, odd. Some of, some of you are odder than others. Uh, it can mean distinct and unique. But there's another meaning. And I think this is obviously, I think it means those things, but it also means this, that we belong distinctively to God. We belong distinctively to one group and distinctively to Him. That's what it means. We are peculiar. Yes, we're odd to the world. God does, the world doesn't understand us. But principally, we, we belong distinctively to Him. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. John. 17. So, that's who we are. That's who we are. All that was who we are. So, why are we here? We've already talked about it. What is our purpose? That we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. So, let's just go back and revisit a point I made earlier. A Christian is not someone who merely gives mental assent to some facts about Jesus, prays a nice little prayer, gets baptized, uh, avoids the big sins, and occasionally attends church. That is not God's definition of a Christian. I know it's the definition of, uh, of a Christian by, by many denominational standards. But this is not God's definition at all. The Holy Spirit is telling us here that a real Christian is someone whose life is preeminently about proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ. Your life shouts it. Your life shouts it. It's not just your words, it's your deeds. It shouts. Jesus is awesome. He's God. He's my Redeemer. Beloved, I tell you all the time, 
You have moments on this planet. Do your job. Do your job. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Is the light not marvelous? Someone tell me it's not. It's marvelous. We can see all the way into eternity. <laughs> yeah, we're not bored anymore. If we've met Christ Jesus, I love, I love this text. Our lives are to be a proclamation, a publication, and an advertisement that He is a great God. That is our job. The scripture. I love what John MacArthur says here about this Greek word translated excellencies. I love it. I'd never seen this before. He says it deals with the ability to do heroic deeds. We're back where we started. God is a warrior. God is a Savior. He has saved us in the most amazing way. It's a heroic kind of love. It's a heroic kind of salvation, beloved. Do you not sense it? Do you not understand how beautiful it is? He called us and, and bought us out of the darkness, sin, death, judgment, and hell. And He's brought us into light, holiness, life, reconciliation, and heaven. It's breathtaking. It's amazing. It's astonishing. It's staggering. It's a heroic kind of redemption. Let the whole created order stand in stunned, awed silence. God is in a manger. He's come for His bride. God is on a cross. He's come for His bride. Beloved, this is a breathtaking love story. Let it not be dogma to you. Let it not be dogma to you. Verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're not the people of God because we wanted it, because we deserved it, or because we pursued it. It's because He pursued us. We understand what Romans 3 tells us, that there are none righteous, there are none who understands, there are none who seek for God. We have not pursued Him, He has pursued us. I still remember the first time, I, when I, after I was, right after I was converted, I started reading through the Bible and the first thing I saw that really jumped off the page at me was in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned. <laughs> I was struck by the fact it was God who came to them. Amen? This awesome seeking God don't talk about a seeking man. The Bible doesn't talk about seeking men. It talks about a seeking God who comes for His bride at great cost to Himself. This is how the Bible speaks. Redemption was God's desire. It was God's idea. It was God's initiative. It was God's work. If you're a Christian tonight, it's because of God. It's because He loved you. It's because of His mercy. It could be translated pity. His pity upon you. I love this. Peter's writing to a group of suffering, persecuted Christians in this epistle. Peter says, I know it's hard, but remember who your God is. This is what he's been saying to us really almost through the whole book. Remember who your God is. Remember who you are. Remember how you were saved. It is a breathtaking thing, beloved. I want each one of you to go home this week. And I just want you to get away by yourself for a little while. And I just want you to praise God for this awesome Gospel and how He has saved you. 
You didn't go looking for him. He came looking for you. In eternity past, he set his heart on his people. And he purposed to come and redeem them. He purposed to come and buy us for a price. This is an awesome thing. It's full of wonder and awe. We will exhaust a billion eternities praising and worshiping God for this incredible salvation. For we once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We know who we are, don't we? If you didn't know when you came in, you know now. And you know why you are. If you didn't know when you came in, you know now. Beloved, I pray that we would honor this great God and we would be about our job description. We'd be about doing what God has left us here to do. That we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of the darkness and into this marvelous light. Praise God. Praise the Lord. If you haven't thanked God in some time, just simply for who He is and what He's done in your life, I, I exhort you this week, get alone. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10 and just count the privileges of knowing Him. Your privileges. Again, not privileges that you sought, but it's the privileges that He sought to give to you. We are going to... Amy, would you go get the, the elements? Oh, Federica's going to. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. It's a perfect, I think it's a perfect te- a text to, to celebrate the table. I want you to count these privileges. Um, MacArthur said, I was reading some of his notes on this text. He said, you know, the Bible is always talking about what it costs to be a Christian, and it costs to be a Christian. But he said something unique. He said, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, lets us in a little bit on what it pays to be a Christian. Just the the privileges of being a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. The richness of it. And um, so I think it's a perfect text before we come to the table. So, I want you to come. We know we're supposed to come remembering this great salvation. Remembering what Jesus Christ did for each of us. Remember and rejoice and worship and give thanks. That's what this is about. So I'm going to warn you not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. Paul warned the Corinthians. So I I do this every time. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come to the table with sin in your heart, unrepentant sin in your heart. Repent from your sin. Confess your sin. Confess before the Lord. Then come and celebrate. Most of you know how we do it here. Um, Orazio or someone will come and play or sing for three or four or five minutes. During that time, I want you to prepare your heart to come to the, to the table. We have open communion here. So if you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and followed Him in believers' baptism, you are welcome to have communion with us. So you prepare your heart in these few minutes. Uh, during the time that Orazio is playing, go up, take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat, And after the song is ended, I will stand and I'll read a text and then we will partake of the elements. Okay? So let's celebrate this awesome God and this awesome salvation.